Amen. Good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. It's good to see you. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders and one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is week 5 for us in our series through the Gospel of Mark. Today will be Mark 2, starting in verse 13. I'll meet you there in just a couple of minutes. I think if you put that in front of your face, uh, whether that's in an old school physical Bible or even a Bible app, it'll serve you well. I'll meet you there in a minute. Even if you have not heard the elephant illustration, um, you have heard the elephant illustration. By that, I mean you have encountered the ideas of the elephant illustration, even if you've never heard it. You've met people and talked to people who embody its commitments, and you've interacted with people who hold on to its ideals. The elephant illustration, it goes like this. Let's imagine there are six blind men who are touching an elephant, trying to determine what it is that they feel, what it is that they are putting their hands on. One man, he touches the massive belly of the animal, and he thinks to himself, well, of course, I'm touching a wall. Another man, he grabs hold of the tail of the elephant, and he thinks to himself, well, of course, I have a rope in my hands. And still a third man touches the, the long trunk of the elephant, and he thinks, maybe this is a fire hose that I have in my hands. And so on and so on and so on it goes. Each man is grabbing a different part of the elephant without any one of them knowing what it is that they really have their hands on. Now, what's the point of the elephant illustration? Well, so it goes. We are all blind men when it comes to God. We might know part of him, but we can't really know him because we can't see or feel all there is to see or feel. And so when it comes to God, we're really like blind men, just grasping about in the dark, thinking that we know more than we actually do. Now, though it's quite ancient, this elephant illustration, it captures so perfectly the spirit of our modern age. In our culture, there is no truth, right? There's just my truth and your truth. And in our culture, there's no absolute or ultimate authority except the absolute and ultimate authority of the individual to be or do or think whatever he or she or they wants to be or do or think. And so the elephant illustration, it just embodies the spirit of our age, and it allows us to make sense of people who think and believe differently than we do. And it's attractive. It's attractive because it it seems humble. It's actually profoundly arrogant if you peel back the layers, but it seems humble to us. And and it, it kind of, in a weird way, comforts us because it helps us to reconcile the truth claims of something like the Bible with the competing worldviews that exist in our world. In essence, it helps us to avoid the inconvenient truths of the Bible. It allows you to look at the Bible, which says things like Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. It allows you to hold on to that truth while at the same time understanding your Mormon or Buddhist or atheistic or agnostic neighbor because it allows you to think that maybe they're just looking at the same elephant, just a different part of that elephant than you are. It allows you to conclude, you know, we're all the same, so we're good here. 
Now, like I said, you know people who think this way. Maybe you are someone who thinks this way, even if you've never thought about a bunch of blind guys putting their hands on an elephant. Now, in reality, there are at least two massive problems with the elephant illustration. One is, as I've already suggested, even though it pretends to be humble, it's actually profoundly arrogant, as well as self-contradictory. Right? The premise of the whole illustration is that no one can see the entire truth. No one can see the entire elephant. But do you know who claims to see the entire elephant? Right? It's the person who's making the illustration in the first place, who's saying, oh, no, 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 you only have a hold of the tail. Right? The person who's looking at the whole thing claims to see the whole thing and is the person who's pointing out that any one of us might only be grabbing a portion of what we think we are grabbing a hold of. And so the illustration boasts in the ability that the illustration says is impossible. It's self-defeating and arrogant. But the bigger problem with the elephant illustration is the question, what if the elephant talks? What if the elephant walks around and says, this is my trunk and this is its purpose. This is my tail and this is its purpose. I am the elephant behold. What if the elephant talks and reveals itself to people as an elephant? You see, the elephant illustration is actually correct about one thing, and that is that we are all blind men when it comes to God. But the Bible tells us that we have no ability on our own to arrive at a knowledge of or an understanding of who God is. We will never come to those right conclusions completely by our power. But the elephant illustration never considers something critical. What if the elephant, or the God that the elephant represents, having spoken the universe into existence, then also spoke himself into human flesh and came and lived and dwelled among his people? What if the elephant, taking on human flesh, declared and displayed exactly what he is like? If that happened, then can't we be sure we know what an elephant is? From my vantage point, that's exactly what we are seeing as we walk through the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Right? The people in these stories, they're hearing the elephant's voice, and their ears are being opened, and their eyes are beholding the glory of Jesus. They are seeing what an elephant looks like when they come face to face with Jesus Christ. And I pray that the same thing is true for us, just as it has been for 2,000 years since these stories were written down. Right? As we read about the person of Jesus, we're hearing the voice of the elephant and the same God who spoke the universe into existence, he now speaks to us through his word. He tells us what he is like and he shows us what he is like. And so as we've seen again and again already in the Gospel of Mark, I pray that today we'll see just how stunningly and profoundly compelling Jesus is. Have you been listening to his voice? Have you been beholding him with your eyes, really listening and really looking? Because the Jesus we meet here in the Gospel of Mark, he's moving, stunning, almost irresistible. If you ask God to give you eyes 
to really see him and ears to really hear him. Stunning, compelling, irresistible. I pray this morning, right now, that you will ask God to reveal him to be as much to us. Our passage in Mark this morning, it centers around conflict. Specifically, we're going to see four examples of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw the first signs of that conflict, the first signs of danger in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus healed a paralyzed man in his house, and as he did that, he claimed to have authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, he claimed to be the elephant, right? He claimed to be God himself because only God can forgive sins, and Jesus told everyone that he was God. And then when he backed that up by revealing his divine and miraculous power that didn't sit well with the religious leaders who were looking on, and they went out and began to plot against him. In our passage today, we'll see the tension between Jesus and these religious leaders starting to boil over. Now, the main reason there's conflict between Jesus and these men is because Jesus, through his teaching and through his actions, he's making a claim. Right, a claim that will turn the world upside down, a claim that can turn your life upside down. He's claiming to be God and as God, the Savior of sinners. But what Jesus shows us in this passage today is that he doesn't save sinners through their religious obedience. He saves sinners through himself. And as we'll see, that's a pill that the religious leaders just can't swallow. Let me show you what I mean. Starting in Mark 2, verse 13. This first story, it involves conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders because Jesus fellowships with tax collectors and sinners. Let me read for us. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, perhaps not unlike today, um, working as a tax collector in Jesus' day, it came with heavy social cost. In Palestine, right, it was the Romans who were collecting the taxes, and they used the money they collected from taxes to keep the people of Palestine under their thumb, right, to oppress those people, in this case, the local Jewish people. And so if you were a Jew who went to work collecting taxes for Rome, like your own people would view you, I think rightly, as a bit of a traitor. As a result of that, like the Jews, they banned tax collectors from their synagogues. Um, They essentially had to give up their Jewish identity. Their own families would, would disown them. They were disgraced in their eyes. 
And some Jewish leaders, they even considered tax collectors to be ceremonially unclean. If you've been with us through this series, maybe you remember the leper at the end of Mark chapter 1 who was ceremonially unclean. That means he was disgraced and cut off and separate and cast out and away from the people, living in almost complete social isolation. That's what it was like to be a tax collector too. And Mark's hinting at this. Maybe you noticed as I read that like when he describes Levi, he keeps talking about Levi, a tax collector and a sinner. Or when he's describing the people who are around Levi, the only people who would hang out with him would be other tax collectors, right? And so Mark even, he keeps referring to them as tax collectors and sinners. And what the Pharisees want to know is why is Jesus hanging out with these dudes? Not just hanging out with them. In the case of Levi, Levi, of course, maybe you know, Um, His other name is Matthew. We're going to see him referred to by that name in Mark chapter 3. We know from the other Gospels that this is the Matthew who's the author of our first Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. In Levi's case or Matthew's case, why is Jesus welcoming this tax collector and sinner into his entourage? Why is he calling him to be one of his disciples and come after him? And now at the end of this passage, why is he in Levi's house reclining at his table, eating a meal with him and with all of his friends? That's what the Pharisees want to know. And Jesus responds to them. It's a, it's a bit of a mic drop. Right? He says, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, of course, the difference between Levi and the Pharisees is not that one is a sinner and the others aren't. The Bible makes it quite clear that everyone is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The difference in this case is that Levi knows he's a sinner, whereas the Pharisees seem to be oblivious to that fact. Levi knows he needs a Savior. The Pharisees do not. The tax collectors who hang out with Levi, they know they need a savior. That's why they drop everything and hang out with Jesus after he meets Levi. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they don't think they need those things. They don't think they need a savior because they believe that they have earned and deserved their acceptance in God's eyes on the basis of their religious deeds. Right there that sets up the next three conflict stories, right? We're seeing the fault lines exposed and revealed between the way Jesus works to save sinners and the way the religious leaders expect the kingdom of God to work, right? These are the battle lines. Jesus, he's here on the side of unrighteous sinners, and on the other side are the self-righteous Pharisees, those who think they are so healthy that they do not need a physician. And by the way, I'll tell you now, we make a grave error if we read this passage and the stories that follow it, and we think to ourselves, man, those Pharisees are awful. Right? If we do that, we've actually made the same mistake that the Pharisees themselves are making. If we do that, we are actually just like the Pharisees. And church, we are just like the Pharisees. The pharisaical impulse to judge yourself and others on the basis of a set of laws, that's an impulse that is alive and well in every single one of us, right? In the end, all of us have someone, right? A certain kind of person or a certain group of people, but we have someone that we're tempted 
to look down on. And all of us, we have some, some kind of standard that we're tempted to judge other people against. Right? If you are driven, type A, high achieving, right? if that is you, then, then you are probably tempted to look down on people who don't work as hard as you, who aren't quite as organized as you, who aren't as committed to getting results as you are. You're tempted to look down at the kind of people who just go with the flow and who are easygoing, and you're probably tempted to think that there are subtle and small ways in which you are superior to those people. And on the flip side of that, if you are laid back and relaxed and easygoing, well, I'd really love for you to tell me what that's like. <laughs> but if that's you, like it's, it's probably a temptation for you to, to look down on those annoying wound-up type A's. Right? You're probably thinking, man, those dudes need to chill. Thank God I'm not like that. And so on and so on. Like all of us, we do this. Maybe that's not the thing where we're, that's not the standard that we're operating against, but we all have a standard. Right? Maybe it's social status. Maybe it's race or ethnicity. Maybe it's country of origin. Maybe it's educational level. Maybe it's political affiliation. But all of us have some standard by which we instinctively evaluate ourselves and we have a standard that we look to in order to build ourselves up and to put other people down. In other words, all of us are self-righteous Pharisees in some way or another. When we read about these Pharisees, that's what we should think about. Where the name Pharisees, it means separate ones. These were religious leaders in the time of Jesus who took great pride in keeping themselves separate from other people, think above other people in their minds. They kept themselves separate from other people by keeping the law perfectly. Right? These are people who would never eat dinner with a tax collector. They would never eat dinner with sinners because that would mess with their separateness. But Jesus has come to mess with their separateness. He's come to expose the ugly self-righteousness that drives that way of living and that way of thinking. And he's come to turn upside down the religious rituals that made some people think that they were healthy and that cupped other people thinking they were sick. That's where the next story goes. So the first one, conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over who he's spending time with. Now we see conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over the religious discipline of fasting. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the Pharisees, they fasted in order to show off their religiosity, right, as their way of demonstrating an extreme commitment to keeping the Old Testament law. They believed that rigorous law-keeping was a way of earning favor from God. It was their way of building themselves up and really putting other people down. 
Fasting was a measure of their devotion to God, of their commitment to God. The more they fasted, the more committed they were, the better. But Jesus here begins to point out that this whole line of thinking, that your status before God is something that you earn, that that's flawed. In verse 19, he asks, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, in ancient Palestine, a wedding was not like a 30-minute ceremony followed by a three-hour reception and then you were done. No, a wedding was a week-long affair. The whole village would come. Everything would stop. There would be no competing calendar events. No one would conduct business. Everyone would attend the wedding feast. Everything would be about that wedding feast until that wedding feast was over. In other words, the worst time to be fasting would be during a wedding feast. Right, if the whole town is having a massive week-long barbecue, that's not a great time to be having a juice cleanse. During the wedding feast, while the bridegroom is present, the guests should feast. But Jesus goes on to give us two very quick illustrations that tell us that what he's saying here is really about more than feasting. He's talking about how we relate to God. In verse 21, he talks about sowing. He says, no one sows and unshrunk piece of cloth on an old garment. Why? Well, because when you wash it, that unshrunk patch is going to start to shrink. The other garment, the outer garment, has already shrunk. And so the unshrunk piece of cloth is going to shrink more rapidly than the rest. Eventually, it'll rip and tear out of that garment. You'll have a bigger hole than you had to begin with. Verse 22, he talks about wine. The principle is the same of these illustrations. He says, no one puts new wine which has yet to be fermented and really expand. No one puts new wine in an old wineskin because that old wineskin, it's already stretched out because it's already had wine ferment and expand inside of it. And so you don't put new wine in an old wineskin because if you do that, the new wine as it expands will further stretch that old wineskin to the point of breaking and that wine will spill out everywhere and Jesus says it'll be destroyed. And what's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about how we build our relationship with him. He's talking about how we relate to him. The Pharisees want to relate to him by keeping the law and by being obedient. But Jesus wants us to relate to him by his grace, through relationship with him, through a right understanding of who he is and what he has come to accomplish Jesus didn't come for healthy people, but for sick. He didn't come for people who thought that they were in good spiritual shape, for people who could keep up religious appearances by fasting religiously. No, he came for people who were and who are in deep spiritual need. And he came for people who were willing to recognize him for who he truly is. Jesus is saying you can't take the new wine of his grace and his gospel and pour those things into an old wineskin of religious rules and rituals. That wineskin, it won't. It can't hold the new wine of Jesus' grace. That just won't work. Still two more stories to consider. More conflict here between Jesus and the religious leaders. But now the focus of that conflict shifts to another religious law or ritual, the laws and rituals regarding the Sabbath. Here's the first one. Look at verse 23. 
One Sabbath, Mark writes, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, the Jews practiced the Sabbath as something that was ordained, not in the law of Moses, but actually even farther back in creation itself. Right, if you read the creation account in Genesis, God creates for six days and he rests on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, God doesn't get tired, right? He rests on the seventh day because his work was finished and complete. And so the Jews, they practiced Sabbath as a way of recognizing God and his ordering of creation and of their dependence on him. But by the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was really the main thing that distinguished Jews from their pagan neighbors. And so in order to really preserve and reinforce the distinction between the Jews and the Romans who surrounded them, the Jews, they were quite religious about Sabbath keeping. They actually established 39 different regulations around the Sabbath that were to help you keep Sabbath, to keep you from accidentally working on the Sabbath, essentially. So, for example, the Jews decided that a Sabbath day journey should be defined as a journey of 1,999 paces, roughly half a mile. So, if you needed to walk to Dollar General on a Sabbath day, but it was only 1,999 paces away, you could do that. However, if it was 2,000 paces away, you were out of luck. That was too far. To walk there would mean that you were working on the Sabbath. Relevant to this passage... If you were hungry on the Sabbath and you needed grain, you were allowed to walk through your grain field so long as that grain field was less than 2,000 paces away, right? Because if it was 2,000 or more, then you would be violating the laws regarding a Sabbath day's journey. But you were allowed to walk through your grain field on a Sabbath day. However, you were only allowed to stoop down and pick up the grain that had already fallen to the ground. That was not considered work. But if you plucked a head of grain that was still on the stalk, that would be considered work and it would be a violation of the Sabbath rules. This is the kind of thing that the Jews in Jesus' day did to put these boundaries around the Sabbath. Apparently, regulations like this still exist among Orthodox Jews in Israel today. Aaron Busey, our worship director, he told me this week that if you visit Israel, Orthodox Jews, they will not use an elevator on the Sabbath day because they understand that pushing an elevator's buttons would constitute work. My question is, isn't climbing the stairs more work than pushing the button? But that doesn't seem to be relevant, really. This is why the Pharisees push back on Jesus and on his disciples. The Pharisees, they don't think that Jesus or his disciples are respecting the Sabbath rules. But Jesus pushes back on them, really in two ways. On the one hand, it seems that the Pharisees have forgotten what their Bibles say. In 1 Samuel 21 David, along with his men, ate the bread of the presence in the tabernacle, bread that was supposed to be reserved for the priests. Because David was God's anointed king, that was allowed. And so Jesus, he's subtly here claiming to be 
a better David, the true anointed king? But secondly, Jesus makes another one of those mic drop statements in verse 27 when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, he claims to be Lord over the Sabbath. Essentially, that's a claim to be a Lord over everything because the Sabbath goes all the way back to creation. Jesus, he's claiming to be God. He's Lord over the Sabbath because he's God himself, which means that the Sabbath rules don't exactly apply to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. The carpool line at my son's school is quite possibly my least favorite place on the entire planet, right? It moves so slowly, things take forever. And worst of all, like if you violate the rules in that carpool line, written rules or unwritten rules, then you endure the judgment and scorn of every parent, every teacher, every child, every administrator in the place, right? Like if you're in the carpool line and you're moving too slowly, everyone judges you. If you pull up at the wrong time, everyone honks their horn. If your child comes out to the car and then realizes that he's forgotten his gym bag and has to run back into the school, the administrators, they just give you this death stare while you hold up traffic waiting for your child to come back out from the school. Right? I, ju I just hate waiting in the carpool line for my sons. The only saving grace of the entire experience is the police officer who directs the traffic flowing out of the school onto the main street. Because after you've waited for 30 minutes in the carpool line, snaking around the school, trying to get up to the place where your kid can actually get in the car, after you've endured the judgment of all the other cars for the things that you've done wrong, your carpool line sins, like you just want to get out of there. And finally you reach that police officer and his job is to help you get out of there, right? Like he helps speed you on your way. And so when you pull up to the street where he is manning the street and directing traffic, if he's waving you on, you don't stop. Nobody cares if you use your turn signal or not, right? You don't have to look both ways on that main street. You don't even have to slow down because his presence is there, right? He is waving you on. And that means that you can disregard all of the other traffic rules and regulations that you would normally abide by. In his presence, those rules are unnecessary, because in his presence, they are essentially fulfilled. That's what Jesus does to the Sabbath. Right? He's God himself, and so he's Lord of the Sabbath. Which means, of course, his disciples can walk 2,000 paces and pluck the head of grain from the stalk. Because the one who rules and reigns over all things is present. He's with his disciples. And he's rendered, therefore, the Sabbath unnecessary because it's fulfilled. It sets up the last story, one more conflict to consider still about the Sabbath. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, the Pharisees. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It should go without saying that healing someone on Sabbath is like pushing the elevator buttons, right? It's against the 39 rules. Verse 3, and Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. By now, this sounds kind of familiar, right? The Pharisees are sitting there. They're waiting on the edge of their seats to see if Jesus is going to break the Sabbath rules by healing this guy. In response, Jesus asks them a question that they can't answer, and so they sit there like dummies. And when he finally does heal the guy, they storm out in their righteous indignance. By the way, verse 6 is so telling. Mark tells us that immediately these dudes went out to hold counsel. So immediately on the Sabbath, you know it's against the Sabbath rules? Holding counsel. And who do they hold counsel with? Mark tells us the Herodians. Those guys are basically worse than tax collectors. Right? They were also Jews who were in bed with the Romans, but they were like government officials. They were the worst. In other words, the Pharisees, they go out and they do the very things that they're accusing Jesus of doing. But that's beside the point. The point is this. Jesus has come to save sinners. Right? He's come to take unwelcome people and welcome them into his family. He's come to take unrighteous people and to bring them into his righteous kingdom. He's come to be the physician that the sick need. But he has not come to save people through religious rules. He has not come to save people through law-keeping, Sabbath-keeping, and fasting Those are institutions that have a place, certainly. They can cultivate in us an awareness of our dependence upon God. But through our fallen human nature, they can also be twisted into the thing by which we look down on others, into the thing by which we build ourselves up. They can become the source of our wicked self-righteousness. And Jesus wants nothing to do with that. Now, what Mark is showing us in these encounters is that there are really, in the end, two radically different ways of building your relationship with God. One, it's based on religious rules and duties and observances. In this system, the law matters. In fact, it's everything. Sabbath-keeping is something that you live and die by. Fasting is something you do to show that you're really, really committed And man, you'd better keep your distance from those tax collectors and sinners. Now, the truth is, most people in the world today, most people who believe that there's a God, at least, they believe that this is how it works, that you relate to God by being good, by keeping the rules. Now, there are a million variations on who exactly that God is and a million variations on what exactly those rules are, but most world religions and most New Agey spiritual systems and even most secular frameworks are really just different versions of this. Be good, however good's defined, and God, whoever he is or whoever she is, whoever it is, will be happy with you. There are literally, no exaggeration, billions and billions of people on our planet who are trying to live this way. Mark's point is that Jesus is offering us something radically different than that, something radically better. To start, we have to acknowledge Jesus' claims seriously. Right? He's not just someone telling us how to live our lives, and he's not someone who's just telling us what one part of the elephant looks like. He's the whole entire elephant. 
In the 19th and 20th centuries, there were a bunch of Bible scholars who tried to make the argument that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That the church, after Jesus' death, in order to kind of accumulate power, that they manufactured this idea that Jesus claimed to be God, but that Jesus himself never really actually claimed that. The thing about that is that if you read the New Testament, even on just the surface level, like you come face to face with Jesus' claims to be divine. I mean, we have this morning, Mark 2.19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Right? Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. Every Jew knew that at the end of history, that God would culminate history with a wedding feast between himself and his people, and that he would be the bridegroom and his people would be the bride. And Jesus is saying, I'm that God. I'm that bridegroom. Mark 2.28 So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbaths. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who's going to come to judge the living and the dead. I'm the one who is enthroned upon the clouds, who will return in power and glory to make all things right. I am the creator of all things. Therefore, I am Lord of the Sabbath. See, everything that Jesus says, it rises and falls upon his claims to be divine everything. Either Jesus is this deranged lunatic, or he's God himself, and there's just no other option. N.T. Wright is a British historian and theologian. He may be the most prolific theological writer of our time, but that's beside the point. I just want you to listen to what he says about this very issue. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Church right is right. You can't merely like Jesus. But either he's everything or he's nothing. And any commitment to him between those two realities, it's shallow. It's pathetic. And it doesn't even make sense, right? Jesus is either the hurricane become human or he's nothing. He's either the fire become flesh and God himself or he's nothing. But that's not the only thing Jesus is claiming here. The second thing that he's claiming through all of these stories is that the only way we can relate to him is by his grace. The only way we get an invitation to his table is by his grace. The only way we're ever welcomed into his presence is by his grace. We have to acknowledge that we need him as king. We have to acknowledge that we need him as savior, someone who will rule us and someone who will save us. And the reason billions and billions of people are trying to relate to God by keeping the rules is because they're not convinced that they need a savior. Are you? For most of us, our self-salvation projects, they don't involve fasting and Sabbath keeping. 
But that doesn't mean that we aren't just like the Pharisees. Modern-day Phariseeism, it just has new rules, new laws. It's still the same disease at its root. In other words, we all struggle with the ugly realities of self-righteousness. The easiest way you can see this in yourself. What is the thing by which you consistently think that you're better than other people? Or what is the thing because of which you consistently feel like you're a complete and miserable failure? Now, it sounds to us like those are two opposite things, but they're really twin sides of the same self-righteous, pharisaical coin, right? When we look down on other people because of something in us, we think, look at how awesome I am. When we feel miserable and shameful and guilty because of something we haven't done, we think, look at how awesome I should be and I'm not. Self-righteousness holds those things together. What do you do that makes you feel superior to other people? What do you do that makes you feel inferior to other people? However you answer those questions, that is where you are like a Pharisee. That's where I'm like a Pharisee. Whether we realize it or not, those are the things that we are looking to in order to save ourselves, in order to give ourselves credibility in the mirror before others, and before God. But the warning of this passage is that all of those self-salvation projects are doomed because we're all sick. We all need a physician. We all need the grace of Jesus to heal us. And so what we're seeing here is two radically different ways to build your relationship with God. One we might call religion, a system of rules that puts you in good standing in God's eyes. Fails every time. The other, we might call good news, gospel. A declaration of who Jesus is and what he has done to heal us when we're sick. It doesn't involve a system of rules. It doesn't involve a system of laws. It's based entirely upon his grace. One of the best preachers ever, in my mind, is someone that most of us have never heard of. Um, his name was Dick Lucas. Uh, Lucas was the pastor at a church in London called St. Helen's Bishop Gate. The English are a little bit better at naming things than we are, in my mind. Um, but Lucas, he pastored St. Helen's Bishop Gate for years. And in one sermon, um, Lucas reflects on these things that we've been talking about, right? This distinction between religion and gospel. And as he does that, he, he describes an imaginary conversation between a first century Christian and a first century Roman pagan. And that conversation goes like this. Ah, says the pagan neighbor, I hear you are religious. Wonderful. Religion is so helpful. Where's your temple? And the Christian replies, well, we don't have a temple because Jesus is our temple. No temple, replies the neighbor, but where do your priests work and do their rituals? And the Christian replies, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our priest. No priests, says the neighbor, but where do you offer your sacrifices to earn God's favor? And the Christian answers, we already have God's favor, and we don't need sacrifices. 
because Jesus is our sacrifice. And the Roman concludes, no priests, no temple, no sacrifices? What kind of religion is this? And Lucas says, that's the point exactly. It's no religion at all. It's gospel. Good news. God saves sinners. Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Have you answered his call? Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus is the elephant and that he came and he spoke to us and told us exactly who he is and exactly what he is like. We pray that you would help us to behold the truth that he is the hurricane made flesh. We pray that we would not be deceived this morning by the idea that Jesus is merely offering us some way to be better versions of ourselves. We pray that we would not be deceived this morning by the idea that through Jesus we can just accomplish something better, that we can just be something better, that Jesus is just there to help us improve ourselves. Now help us to see the truth that we were sin, sick, and needy, and that Jesus came to save us. Seeing that, knowing that, believing that, may we give everything in our lives to him. We pray these this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.